Hello everyone, I'm Ian Abernethy and this is not the ianabernethy.com podcast. Um, a few days ago I was interviewed for the Richard Barnes podcast and you'll know Richard, he's the voice that introduces my normal podcasts and uh, he's the web guru and he's a good friend of mine and um, he does a great podcast. So he asked me to be a guest on there and what we mainly talked about was uh, my history, how I got into the martial arts, how I became a full-time uh, martial artist. And I know that's a topic that listeners to my podcast have always wanted me to cover. Um, if I'm honest, it just feels a little bit unusual to talk about yourself, so it's never really been a topic I wanted to, to, to do or felt comfortable doing. So, But anyway, with Richard's help, we've kind of done that, and I hope that you find this uh, discussion about all those things interesting. I asked Richard if he'd be happy with me to um, happy with me sharing it with you all, and obviously that he was. So uh, in a moment, I'll hand you over, and you've got the full Richard Barnes podcast, uh, obviously uncut. I've just added this little extra bit so people know where uh, it came from. And also, I want to explain one of the things that Richard said at the start of the podcast uh, when he made reference to me walking on water and he said if we've, got, if we've got time he says we'll get back to that as it was we didn't have time but where that comes from so this is a little bonus for my um, regular listeners uh, a few years ago quite a few years ago uh, six seven something like that uh, I was out canoeing on one of the local lakes, Derwentwater Lake, with uh, a friend of mine, a good friend of mine who goes by the nickname of Ringo. And uh, while we were canoeing, we noticed that where we were in the middle of this lake was surprisingly shallow. So the water levels were just and so that this particular part of the lake was just under the water. So it was deep on all of the sides, but this particular bit was there. So we um, rowed the canoe to the shore. I swam back out and then stood up where this, this shallow bit of water was. And from the, the sides of the lake, it looks like I'm walking on water. And I put this um, uh, picture up on the blog. Those who are old enough, have been with us long enough to remember the blog. Uh, Richard always liked that photograph. And uh, what I've done is, if you haven't seen it, I've embedded it in this podcast. So if you're listening to this podcast on... Um, well, anything, a computer or an iPod or something like that that displays the images, you'll be able to see that picture there. So um, I thought I'd best explain what that was. I always I joked at the time that I should sell, tell people I can walk on water through some secret chi technique hidden in Sanchin or something, but um, it just so happened it was favourable water levels and it made for an amusing picture. So, um, yep, so I, I'm not miraculous. That's all that was. Just happened to be perfect weather conditions. So, yeah, so anyway, I'll hand you over to Richard. I hope you enjoy the podcast. And obviously, uh, check out Richard's other episodes. There's some great pair of people he's, he's interviewed. Really interesting. And also, um, I'll be back with one of my podcasts um, early in the new year. So, um, thanks once again for your support. And I hope you enjoy listening to the richardbarnes.com podcast podcast. Hello and welcome to the richardbarnes.com podcast. The emphasis of the podcast is to show through others' experiences and insight a beacon of knowledge, perspective, wit and warning, a tale of life's lessons in whatever field. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email me at richard at richardbarnes.com. Okay, it's time to podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the richardbarnes.com podcast. This morning, actually, it's afternoon now, isn't it? It's it's the 12th of the 12th of the 12th. It's the final day of the century when all the dates will be the same, if you know what I mean, which apparently has prompted a, a rush on the registry office, which has absolutely nothing to do with my guest for today. And may I welcome Mr. Ian Abernethy. 
<laughs> well, hey, Richard. Hello, listeners. <laughs> Can you keep that to the singular at this moment? It's the early days <laughs> of this podcast. So, uh, actually, I think I know them. Um, Steve in Lancaster. Thanks for all the thanks for all the best wishes. <laughs> this is for you, mate. Um, <laughs> exactly. Makes it all worthwhile. And by a spooky coincidence, you know that guest you wanted me to get on. Well. <laughs> I couldn't get him. I got Ian Abernethy instead. You got me instead. Uh, yeah. So, um, Ian Abernethy um, is a sixth dan karate person. He is renowned throughout this country and around the world for the type of karate that he teaches, which is bunkai. I'll get to that. Um, he's renowned for the the way in which he teaches um, applied karate. I'll get to that as well as. But what I want to get out of today's podcast is a little bit behind the scenes of Ian Abenefi. Um, how he got to be the full-time coach, um, teacher, writer, author, DVD maker, and stander of, um, stander of person on water. There are pictures on the web <laughs> that prove inconclusively, uh, conclusively, not inconclusively, but conclusively that Ian Abenefi can walk on water. Yeah, done that. Okay, so we'll, well, hopefully, if there's enough time, uh, and I don't really uh, receive any um, dodgy uh, threats from fundamental religious groups who suggest, <laughs> or alternatively, you may get calls from fundamental religious groups who have just realised you are the second coming of Jesus Christ. And yeah, by we're the, all doomed. And by the and by the way, happy birthday for thirteen days time. Oh yeah, yeah I just worked that out. Yeah, yeah okay. <laughs> I had to link why 12, 12, 12 was actually put in there. So there's obviously some sort of subtext. Not that I plan these things. Anyway, so um, if, if I may, and as I have done with my other guests, take you back to the very, very beginning um, of life, the world and everything. Because I want to find out what made you become a full-time uh, martial arts instructor. I wanted to find out um, the process you went through. Um, to doing something that I've heard you say on many occasions, something you love to do it is your dream job. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's go back then in my time machine. In fact, actually get to have a, uh, have a proper go in the time machine um, yourself at the end of the podcast if you've listened to um, um, previous ones because I asked the same question um, of the, each of my guests so far on the, I think this is issue six or seven, edition seven, the same question, um, at, at the end. So, but okay, you were, you are doing your dream job, but was that always the way I take it? You're actually from your accent, not from around these parts, no, no, but more up North. Correct. Yes. But born in, uh, both my parents are from the town that I now live in which is Cockermouth up in Cumbria. I was born uh, in Manchester. My dad had moved down there for work and obviously my mum went there uh, with him. Um, I was unexpected, if we can put it that way. Really? And then, Yes, absolutely. Yes. You, were then, the oldest or the youngest? Or? I'm the eldest, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so the first one. I was, uh, yeah. I've got what, what a younger brother called uh, called Andrew. Yeah, so he was born uh, not long after we moved back into this town. So with respect to your good mother... Um, it was a learning curve. Um, when you say it was unexpected, well, I'm not doing that again. Yeah, well, she got it right with Andrew. Ah, right, okay. <laughs> so, yes, so from an early, then you, Manchester, you grew up in Manchester or? No, 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 first three years. So I've got one or two memories of it, but that's all, you know, then. So the majority of my time I've been uh, 
in Cumbria and my family are all from this area as well. You know, my granddad and my granddad, great granddads, yada, yada, as far back as you go. So parents moved out for a few years and I was born while they were out and then kind of moved back when I was kind of three years old. Something uh, I've picked up from conversations with you in the past. Actually, this is a, this is a bit of a surreal experience because um, me personally, I've known Ian for a lot, a lot of years. And for me to talk to him in the way in which I'm talking to him now is a bit bizarre because usually we just talk a load of tosh. Um, <laughs> But uh, I know you're fiercely proud of where you're from. Correct, oh yeah. No, I like it up here. You know, I mean, it's, um, it wouldn't be everyone's cup of tea, but I, I've got that joy of, I can, within minutes of leaving my house, I've got lakes, I've got forests, I've got fells. I keep forgetting as well, obviously, not everyone knows what a fell is. You know, it's well, just like a big hill, but again, it's a local word for them. You know, the, the huge kind of hills. Yeah. Like yesterday, looking at these snow-capped, hills are all around me it's beautiful but it's, i love also, it i've also heard in your own podcast that are available on ianabernethy.com um you posing uh, quiz test questions yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, where you will speak in cumbrian for um, people to try and work <laughs> out what the hell are you on well, about see, this is the thing see because with my own podcast people uh, particularly those from america can't get the accent because it's not one they've ever heard before, you know, so it doesn't, it's not Scottish, it's not what they regard as English, so where the hell's it from? So I've been mistaken for Scottish, Irish, all kinds of things, I just can't quite work it out. So when, I, and it is an unusual accent, you know, and yeah. mine is relatively thick, I've got friends whose accent's thicker. Um, but it, well, where it comes from is it's um, Norse, Irish, Vikings went to Dublin, set up Dublin, get chased out of Dublin eventually, uh, settled in Cumbria. So we've got loads of like Norse, Irish words and the way that we speak. And interestingly enough, when I travel around the place teaching, the, the places have never had any problems with my accent. Norway, Denmark, all those places never have any problem with it because the, where the inflection sits with their native language, you see. And I don't know if you ever saw the BBC documentary, The Blood of the Vikings, but they took DNA samples from all over the country, and the only place that showed significant Scandinavian DNA was this part of the world, you see. I don't know about uh, you. And on that show, they got two people to speak in broad Cumbrian, where the presenters sat between the two of them, translating back and forth. And he said, he says, he said, they'd probably be easier to understand in Oslo than they would be in London. And I think that's probably true when the accent really gets flown, you know. I don't know about you, Steve, in Lancaster, but I didn't get a word of that. <laughs> well, it, it, it's something I've had to train myself to do as well, because a lot of the words that we use up here, I'll use in everyday speech, and I'll forget that no one else uses them. So the, the classic example, I was once, um, I was driving home after teaching and there was a, a talk on the radio about accents and places where, it, um, across the country. And this woman rang in saying, she's all oh, got some beautiful words in Cumbria. I've just moved to Cumbria and I really like the word that they use for throw, which is scop. She says, I love that word. And that was, I was about 35 then. And mm. that was the first time I realized it wasn't an English word. It wasn't commonly used throughout the country. So of course, when I'm teaching, I, you know, so grab him here and then you can scop him in this direction. You can scop him this way. And I just use it all the time, you yeah. see, until I realise that there's only me. And everyone was polite. No one ever pulled me up on it. <laughs> <laughs> well, having having seen um, a lot of your YouTube videos as well as, um, you have this ability, um, as, as, as an ex-teacher of mine once said, to chop down trees with your legs. Um <laughs> Uh, because because of the kicking uh, kicking power, but uh, which is probably why they didn't want to bring it up 
um, saying, "Excuse me, could you?" Anyway, look. No, the re- the reason the reason for picking this up really is you. you so you grew up. You grew up in, in Cumbria. Went to school there. That's the way your formative years were. In... Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So, Very much a product of my environment. Okay. So, um, well, um, l- l- if you're a product of your environment, I um, I have to argue contraire contraire to it. Um, karate, martial arts, and Eastern Eastern philosophy. Um, the things that um, you know you you teach and and have been for so many years, um, su- successfully uh, are not something that is native necessarily to Cumbria. So, what sprouted your interest, and when did that happen? Well, that, it was at school. Is um, probably about eleven, twelve um, years old, and I, I remember rightly what it was. Typically, when you're eleven, twelve, you know, and you're going from that thing from being a child to a teenager, and you're kind of finding your feet and testosterone's running wild you end you know like most lads at school you end up scrapping all the time don't you mm. so there was that that was that kind of you know I had some positive experiences if you can call it that and some negative experiences so sometimes i won sometimes i got a good hiding and it was time where i thought i probably need lean to learn to do this properly uh also around that time i think it, i remember watching enter the dragon on the tv late one night all and right like, this this is so cool you know that's what i made my own set of kind of nunchakus out of some um uh a brush handle and some bits of string and stuff and then you know that was that was but kind of just thought no i want to learn how to do this properly and there was a few of the guys that i went to school with there was no local club there was no the nearest one was obviously living in cumbria everyone spread out so the nearest club was kind of 15 miles away so um and i didn't really do anything physical as a kid i was pretty lazy if i'm honest you know i just know they never kind of uh, grab my attention really so when i mentioned to my parents you know i quite fancy this you know doing this karate well they were obviously you know really pleased at that you know so um dad's a busy guy mum's a busy guy it's 15 or uh, uh, sorry, busy sorry. Girl. dad's a busy guy mum's a busy well yeah mum's busy girl, too girl, you know? girl yeah not busy girl yeah so I, they um so I, I couldn't the class was twice a week it was on tuesdays and Thursdays, uh, sorry, Tuesdays and Saturdays, Sundays, Tuesdays and Sundays. Yeah. And that was in Whitehaven. So my dad used to drive me through on the Sundays. Couldn't get me there on the Tuesdays because they were too busy. Yeah. So I used to train on a, uh, once a week on a Sunday morning uh, initially. Yeah. Um, and that's how I kind of got into that. First lesson I went, absolutely hated it. Really? Didn't like it. Yeah, Why? didn't like it at all. I was confused. It was a week before a grading, so they'd been kind enough to kind of sneak me in. So, because everyone else knows what they're doing in the beginners group, I have no idea. Yeah, I'm getting confused. I, I, I'm lost as to which arm's supposed to go forward, which legs supposed to go forward. Um, they do a drill during which I completely mess it up. I get punched in the stomach and dropped, which obviously, you know, 11, 12, that was no fun. Yeah. And it was a left, the instructor just said to me, Look, I'm really sorry about today. I couldn't spend a lot of time with you. You know, come back next week and, uh, um, I'll spend some some more time with you, you see, and, and get you started. So uh, he didn't charge me for the class, and because of that, I felt I owed him. So the, you know, went back. My mum said, "How did it go on?" Yeah, I didn't like it. it. wasn't what I expected. Don't fancy it. Don't want to go back. You know, it was just confusing and painful. Uh, went back the week after simply because I felt that I owed him. Uh, he spent a bit of time with me while everyone else was grading. He took me to one side, took me through some basic kicks and punches, and I just loved every second of it. Ah, right. So it was it was that second class that where the bug kind of really bit. Really, you know, I was really nervous as well, and I was I was like that every Sunday. I'd be really nervous before I went, and I would be like that for months and months and months. I can remember getting up on a Sunday morning, sitting eating my breakfast, you know, ready for my you know ironing my own suit and ready to go through to karate and just feeling really fearful and hoping for the day when that fear would pass you know yeah. so it was, i didn't i enjoyed it but didn't enjoy it if you know what i mean but i knew it was something i wanted to do so i had that that teacher at that time 
just took a had that word with you on the first lesson, come back and uh, you know, uh, you probably would not have been doing what you're doing now. Uh, absolutely, that's that's the guy. Alan was the guy's name. He was first down. He was just one of the kind of assistant instructors at the club. Um, he doesn't teach anymore now. He's like a fitness instructor. Last time I spoke to him, but again, it was because of him doing that that I went back. And and you learn from that as well. So I make a point of always making sure that all my beginners when they're coming through the doors you know they're always meant to feel welcome the, it's explained to them that you know this will be difficult and everyone finds it difficult but you'll get through it give it a few weeks you'll be fine and all that kind of stuff mm. so i try and follow his example really because again you know it's one of these little things but if it hadn't been for him i probably wouldn't have gone back and i'd be living a very different life and i'd be a very different person from who i am now and what i'm doing now so okay what, what age you said 12 13 11 12 you said didn't you something like that yeah yeah and, and you kept going once a week through your school years and yeah, well, after a little while, what happened was there was a, um, a someone, one of the local villages started going. So what would happen was I would get a lift to the local village and then they would take me through. So it ended up being twice a week, a few months after that, if you know what I mean. So I managed to find ways of, of getting to classes. How did that impact on your experience at school doing, you know, the, the, the karate thing? Did you get into more scrapes, less scrapes, or were you just more effective in scrapes? <laughs> um I don't know, probably less, I think. You know what I mean? It's just because you kind of settle a bit, I think, and you've got that outlet for it. I don't know. Um, Forgive the impertinent question and the directness of it, but were you a fat lad before you started karate? I was a fat lad before I started karate. Is this why your parents were... I'm pleased that you were going to do something of a physical nature. I don't don't think it was um, much physical. I think it was just the fact that uh, I didn't show much interest in anything. You know, it just just no, nothing really grabbed my attention. You know, so it was. You know, my brother was always he was you know, keen on played football. He did judo, and you know, he was very outgoing. Um, and I just didn't have that. Nothing seemed to kind of inspire me or interest me. You see, if I'm honest, I don't think karate. They've got a different view of it now, but I don't think karate was the ideal. Um, I remember my mum once saying to me, she wished I did a less violent thing like rugby, which I thought was laughable. Because, <laughs> you know, rugby's popular up here, and if you, rugby's a far more violent pursuit than mm. martial arts at times, I think. But I think it was just the fact that I was showing an interest in something and I was working hard at something. And it did it very quickly. It became, looking back, it was a borderline obsession. Because I started training, you know, every day, you know what I mean? I, um, I would, you know, if a grading was coming up, I would do my homework and I would train, I would sleep, I would get up, I would go to school, come back, do my homework, train. You know, that, that's that's how it was. It was something that I, I had to be good at. And if I was doing well at it, I was very happy. If I wasn't doing well at it, I got really miserable. So is, is there, was there any gaps? Okay, let's, you know, um, you're talking about living in Cumbria, um, Cockermouth in Cumbria, which is, even though I've said the name of the place a hundred times, it still brings a wry smile. Um, <laughs> well, I can explain that, if you like, it's why it gets its name. Well, yes, please do, and I'll try very, not very smile. Briefly. When yeah. the Normans came, the, the, re, the, the town is built on the joining of two rivers, the River Derwent and the River Cocker. So when the Normans landed, they redirected one of the rivers to make effectively a moat for the castle. So anyway, but the, the mouth of the, the River Cocker is here. It's when it ends. It's when it hits the River Derwent. Ah. So they call it Cocker Mouth. So it's, after, it's, it's because it's the end of the River Cocker. So so you have but to... yes, it does get some, and I could give you some local slang terms for it, but you'll have to put explicit on your podcast, so well, I, I won't. I don't, think I've got any, I don't think I've got any of them bleepers anymore. <laughs> um, the, okay, so you, you're in Cockermouth um, growing up. You've got this martial arts bit um, going. Um, it's an interest. It's turned into a healthy interest. It's changed the way you look and, and you know, physically look. 
you're getting fitter. Um, but what were your aspirations, you know, in, in terms of school? What were you moving towards? What what did you see, hope to do? This, this is the thing, like, see, if I'm honest, at school, I, I was very disinterested. You know, it was just, I'm, I'm, I'd like to think that I was, and I'm, you know, well, I've got a, last time my IQ was tested, it was 146, so I ain't stupid, but I just had no interest in school. It wasn't something that appealed. I wasn't academically good. If something was of interest to me, like the karate was, I can get into it and get into it fully. If, so academically, I didn't do great at school because I just didn't care. When I was round about uh, 14, you, you do your options at school where yeah. you choose which subjects you're going to study. Yeah. And I deliberately picked ones that would enable me to get into the local uh, chemical plant, the nuclear reprocessing plant, so I could get a job there, which means I wouldn't have to move away, which means I could continue the training that I was doing. So I actually picked... Uh, and again, you know, like for 14, I'm not convinced it was the, the healthiest way to approach things, but it, it was, to say, it was a proper obsession. So it was, that's what I wanted to, to do more than, and it, I mean, it didn't really matter. I mean, I could have found good training anywhere, I'm sure. But in my mind, you know, and I didn't want to leave the dojo. I wanted to make sure that I, I got progressed in the way that I wanted to progress. So I chose a job that would ensure I could live in this locale, you see. So you're Whereas in our area, a lot of people move away for like, as my brother did for university and that stuff. So I thought, hey, I'm not going to university because it'll get in the way of my training, you see. So, so it was that much ingrained in you at that, at that time in, in terms of training, it, it, it was the thing, the driving thing. You, you, cho oh, you chose absolutely. options to make sure that you could continue to train and, and be in and around the place where you, you know, wanted to learn. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what, you know, when you said just before, you know, it was healthy, it was probably physically healthy. I'm not convinced it was mentally healthy looking back to have that level of, you know, it's one thing to be committed to something. It's another thing to be obsessive about it. Well, it's very, I mean, even, well, you can say it's obsessive. I mean, when does love become obses obsessive and yeah. vice versa? But it, it, it does seem a very single-minded thing for a 14-year-old to do. It, it does, and that's to say looking back. But but I think what it was that was that was probably uh, it was a um, a source of self esteem, and I think that was probably what was more important to me. You know, it was something that I, I did take to quite well and did do well at from day one, and it was nice to get kind of um, pats on the back. You know what I mean? And you know, and, and I liked that. Um, but conversely, you know, if it wasn't doing well, it used to really badly affect me. I used to get in very low moods about it. If you know, I w so if a technique wasn't right, I would drill it and drill it and drill it and drill it because it had to be right. It was an emotional need, really. So I, it, it does run deeper than that. I think it was it was a source of self esteem for me, and, and that's why it became so important to me. Which I maybe wasn't getting from well, I wasn't doing anything else, so I wasn't getting from anything else. So you went and um, left school, and you went to work in the as I. As I've said, referred to it in conversations with you, the Ready Breck Factory. Which <laughs> only people who live in the UK of a certain age will get that. Yeah, because <laughs> well, I, I've just seen these adverts on YouTube recently. Uh, I, I don't remember the original ones being run back in the day of, <laughs> of people that eat this Ready Breck porridge type stuff, having a glow around them because they eat eating them. It's just my my sick mind thinking people that work in nuclear reprocessing plants have the same sort of glow about yeah. them, but. Um, you went to what you you got your job. You went to work there. I understand you were a Sparky. That's right, electrician, apprentice electrician, and then electrician there for for quite a while. Yeah. How how long did you do that for? Uh, well, I started my apprenticeship at sixteen. Uh, was fully qualified at twenty, uh, and I left when I was about well, seven years ago. So I left when I was what thirty five, thirty six. Okay. So I was there a good, you know, but well, quite a while. 
the best part of 20 years. So you you left probably well at a, a time that you know I know you've got kids and and, and family. Um, why did you, why did you leave? What was the prompt at well, that time? Was it was it to become the full time instructor? Yeah, or? so these are the things that right. So when when I finished my apprenticeship, uh, one of the I forgot my I did pretty well at the college for the apprenticeship. The, the Sellafield do did I don't know what it's like now, but they used to do really good apprenticeships, really in depth. So you, you do the college side of it and everything else. So I got my ONC in electrical engineering, merits and distinctions all the way. I scored highest out of my entire year for for that. And then when uh, they said, okay, you move on to your higher national, I don't want to do it because it's on a Thursday night. And by that time I was teaching on a Thursday night. So again, you know, it was very clear to me that the karate was the most important thing. So as a lot of my colleagues went on to be foremen and charge hands and, you know, managers, I just no, no interest in that. It gives me enough money to do what I need to do. I did get heavily involved in the union side of things. You know, I ended up in a machinist shop steward in the last 10 years or so I was there. And I was probably on busy with union duties as much as I was on the, the tools, if you know what I mean. So, so during that time, I wasn't interested in progressing there. And in my mind, I knew that, you know, I don't want to do this forever. It's a good stopgap. It pays the bills. But the martial arts are my main love, so I need to find a way in which they can support me in mine so I can do it full time, you know. So you were, you were a, making a few quid at that point with the martial arts. You said you were teaching. Well, I was teaching. I wasn't making a lot of money, though, because if any, you know what I mean? So for one part, I was teaching as part of a group, and I just teach because I loved it. You know, I didn't make any money off it at all. Um, around about the year um, 2000, uh, the stress of the union side of things was getting to me a bit. Because, you know, everyone turns to you and everyone's problems are your problems and I don't like to let people down. And so it was starting there and I just thought, you know, this is the catalyst now. I need to get out of here and and do what I want to do instead of spending time that I don't want to do. It was the point where work was getting in the way of the martial arts, you see, and I just, I, I'm not having this, you know, it's not what I want. So, so what was the methodology? How did you break away from, I'd well, imagine, the, a good wage that, you know, is going to be there ongoing for, you know, as long as you need it to be? Well, a friend of mine once described it as a fur-lined rut, and I kind of like that feeling. You know, it's comfortable, but it's a rut, you know. So I, I, I decided that I want out. I didn't want to do the um, running an association, teaching seven days a week thing that a lot of people do. It, that just didn't appeal to me. Um, so what I did was in about year 2000, I wrote my first book, um, and that was my plan. I was going to kind of uh, write books, DVD, D DVDs, seminars, you know, so I was – and – that's how I met my money, but it's pretty unique that there's not many people do it that way within the martial arts. But that's why I started. I wrote my first book um, while I was still working at Sellafield. That got published and did okay. So I used the money that he generated from that to do my second book. What was the and first was, book called? The first one was the Karate's Grappling Methods book. And then the second one was the Bunkai Jitsu book, which was the big seller, really. That was the breakthrough book, if you like. That was the one that established me. And after that one went out, I'd made a couple of videos by then. It wasn't DVDs. So, um, I was going to ask this question. I said I'd ask this question because um, I referred to it earlier on. What is Bunkai Jutsu? Yeah, so, um, well, Bunkai, if we're going to give it a stricter definition, would mean um, chopping things into little pieces so one can gain understanding. So a good English equivalent would be to dissect. So when we analyse the old classical forms of karate, when we look at, when we dissect them, we understand them. That's the point, you see. So people think that bunkai means applications of the forms, and that's commonly how the term's used within the martial arts world, but strictly it doesn't. So what I started pointing out was, you know, that karate is not this one-dimensional, mid-to-long-range kick-punch system. You know, there's more to it. 
you know, and there's plenty of other people who've said the same thing, and I just kind of wanted to throw my kind of thoughts on that. Hold, um, hold the phone a minute, then. Um, so you decide that you're going to leave a well-paid job that's going to be there for quite a while. Yeah. You write a book that's reasonably well-received. You write a second book that is actually um, a conflict with some people's understanding of traditional martial arts. Yeah. Uh, and you want to, like I say, give up your job. Th- yeah. That was... That was that couldn't have been easy actually because the, the the convention would be to not rock the boat so to speak so early on. Yeah, but that's just not me. I remember, <laughs> I remember uh, giving the book to a um, really well known martial arts instructor who was like a good friend and but I, I should not name him anyway. But I, I gave him it and he actually said to me, he "says Have you written this book to upset people?" That was his response. You know what I mean? He just thought it. Uh, so I knew it was going to be what it is. But again, when you but I believe in what I do. So you think, you know, and therefore I believe it has validity. So you you hope that others will see it will have validity too. Because that's the easy thing, see. If you play it to the mainstream as well, though, that's where everyone else is at. You know what I mean? It's what everyone else is doing. I was asked loads of times, so will you write a book on basic karate techniques? Will you make a DVD on stances and punches and basic movements? I always refuse because I thought there's a million and one people doing that. You know what I mean? It, it's it, it's not. I'm not adding anything to that. There's already people doing it. What I wanted to do is say, well, this is what I how I see it, and hopefully add something that was unique and 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 different. You know so you can't you can't basically you carved out your your niche from what you'd learned to that point from from your understanding of, of, of you know whatever. Well, you're using karate, but whatever material um, a person uses, they, they can't if they identify that niche. And, yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. And then, for, but what what I did was though that was it was a natural. I didn't decide. Well, okay, I want to be a full time martial artist. What can I do to get me to that point? I, I was already um, practicing, training, thinking that way, and then I realised I want to do this full time, and I think people will be interested in this. So you know, the kind of passion came first, if you like, you know, and then um, to enable me to fully pursue that, you, you need time, and uh, you know that meant that work had to go. So I needed to find a way to make my passion pay. So that's when I thought, you know, sharing what I do with others will probably be able to generate just enough of an income. So I did the maths as well when I left and I worked out I was £8,000 a year short for what I needed to maintain a bare existence. £8,000 a year short of, or from what you would... Creating what you were generating from yeah. your martial arts. So I was I was generating a little bit from the books and DVD sales. And I thought, right, okay, bottom line, how much do I need? How much is my mortgage? How much are my fuel bills? How much do I need for a car? How much? What's a bare minimum that me and the family are going to need? You know. So that that's that's what I did. And I thought, right, okay, and what have I got at the moment? And I worked out I was eight thousand pounds a year short, so significantly short. And that's when the kind of leap of faith comes in. You so you think, well, if I've got more time to devote to this my output should increase and therefore I can share what I do with a wider range of people and hopefully, do you know what I mean, there'll be some income generated from that that will enable me to kind of sustain it and do this and keep, you know, doing what I want to do while providing a service for others. So you took this leap of faith. Yeah, yeah. Um, how, how soon did you feel that your efforts, um, by increasing the amount of hours that you put into your business, to your, to your study, to your teaching actually started to pay off was it was it was it straight away um were there scary times did you have to you know do other things to make ends meet as such i'm yeah, how, absolutely, how, absolutely. how did it work for you it, it, well it, 
I mean, there still is, you know what I mean? You, by by definition, you know what I mean? I don't have a regular wage, so there's still times where, you know, it's like, hang on a minute, you know, what's going to happen next month? But you, you manage, you know what I mean? You have lean times and good times. You get used to managing it. It's, it took a while for me to stop thinking like an employed person. That was that was a thing. You get used to a regular wage, and once you get used to an irregular one, it's not as, as kind of problematic. In terms of how quickly it all started to flow together, it was the first three years were probably very precarious. You know what I mean? It was uh, There was a couple of times where I was writing CVs off for other jobs, thinking, you know, I've got to put in for this again, just in case. Um, I managed to get some uh, teaching work in the evenings, like, you know, doing martial arts and stuff that helped support things. You know, I'm obviously very grateful for that, and that was quite helpful. Um, but it, it wasn't an immediate thing. It's just a case of... And the thing with it as well, I'd made a decision in my mind that I would rather fail at it than not try it, if you see what I mean. And that took a lot of the pressure off. Um, I could have played it safe, but I thought I'd rather try and fail than not try and be, you know, know that financially I'm all right. And I'm not a very monetary-minded person either. I mean, anyone who knows me, you take one look at me and the car I drive and the way that I dress. I don't need a lot of money. I have a pretty lean existence, you know. So so long as I've got enough to kind of, you know, pay the bills and treat me and mine, you know, I do all right, you know. So managed all right through these first few years, you know. So how how long ago did you take the leap of faith? That was seven years ago. Seven years ago, yeah, and it, for three years, well, you, you were saying even now, you know, you've, well, you've changed your mindset. You don't think of yourself as an employed person; you're a, a self-employed person, and and you've learned to manage what it is that you do. Um, <clears throat> I know from you know reading your website in abenethy dot com, where all your books and podcasts are available. Um, did you like that? I did. It was good though. Right? Thanks very much. More um, of that. <laughs> Shall I do it again? Um, that uh, the, that you go you go all over the country now um, and all over the world. You recently taught in America. You were you've been over to Germany. You've been into the Nordic states as well. Uh, I believe you've been to Ireland. Uh, yeah. Did you go to Australia? You did, didn't been you? In Australia as well. Yeah. You've been yeah. to Australia as well, um, teaching. Um, where do you, where do you see? You know, you, you, you took the leap of faith. You've um, you know, you can you continued to put books and pro, um, product out there, and you continued to put yourself out there. Is is there a magic ingredient that has has brought about this success? The, the thing with it that I found is it's just being relentless, you know, and being uh, process focused as opposed to product focused. Um, so like, for example, with the seminars, right, you know, so you, there's very few countries I haven't taught in now, do you know what I mean? In terms of it, it, it's, it's uh, here, there and everywhere all the time, um, which I absolutely love. I really enjoy that. But to start with, you know, you get a couple of people ask you to do seminars. So you go along and they're not that well attended, but you, you're there and you, you know, you charge a very small amount, but what'll happen is they'll go back to their club and say, oh, I quite enjoyed that. And you know, it sp- spreads and grows and very, very slowly. I know a lot of people who want to do the kind of things that I'm doing and ask for advice, but where most of them go wrong is they want to jackrabbit to the point where um, it's it, everything's fine, you know, and it doesn't it doesn't work that way. You've got to kind of um, do it slowly and methodically, you know. So it's so like a friend once said to me, he says it's like if you look at a tree, you know, it, it doesn't look like it's grown, but it is, you know, and it's the same kind of thing with this, you know. It's it's not worrying about. 
you know, how many seminar bookings you've got or how many books you've sold or how many DVDs you've sold. The thing is you just keep grinding it away, keep getting your message out, keep doing the seminars, keep producing the new product. It's that thing of just being relentless and, and process focused rather than product focused. That, that's, that's worked for, for me. One of your books is called Mental Strength. Yeah. Where did that come from? Is, is, is this based on your experience of, of, you know, taking something you love and crafting it into something that you, you know, you, yeah, well, you love was, to work? Yeah, Absolutely. That was, that was, well, that was, um, Jeff was the guy, Jeff Thompson was the guy who gave me the, the, the idea for, for that. Cause we were talking about this process. Um, and then, you know, it said, you know, you've, you've got an interesting way of expressing that you should write it down. Well, at that point, you know, I just thought, well, yeah, I've written four martial arts books at that point. And grand believer in all was kind of just, you know, you try something new and different. So I thought, right, okay, I'm going to write a, a if you like a mainstream book, um, so that's what I, I went ahead and did. And I kind of thought through my own kind of philosophies on this stuff, my own kind of worldview on it, and then just kind of written it out in a structured fashion. And that has been a, you know, it's a big selling book, that one. It's by far and away the most popular one that uh, that I've done. But the essential message of that one is the same kind of thing. Again, it's just, you know, if you um, are prepared to take those measured risks and step outside your comfort zone and you are, it's like weightlifting, you know, you won't get any stronger if you're lifting the weight you can already lift. You also won't get any stronger if you just train on a haphazard m- manner. But if you're just, and you also won't get any stronger if you load the bar up with more than you can lift and it crushes you. The, the, tr- the trick is you're just outside your comfort zone and, and you, you uh, stay there relentlessly. You're out there, you keep doing it, you keep doing it, you keep doing it, and then gradually and slowly you get stronger, you see. So the weights are a really good analogy for me because I've always lifted since I was about 16 year old, you know, and I'm a big guy and I've got well above average strength. And when people that I know that want advice on, you know, getting a bit bigger or getting a bit stronger or whatever it happens to be, most of them are really impatient. You know, they want it yesterday, but that's not the way it works. The trick is, you know what I mean, is if you build yourself slowly and gradually, you know, and you constantly get yourself in a place where you are uncomfortable. Because then eventually you get comfortable with it, and then you know it's time to move on again. And that that's been the process that I describe in the book. And it's you know anybody who's any done, ever done anything will recognise that process. It's just that I articulated it. Let me um, ask you about your love affair. What is it particularly about you know the karate that you do that does it for you? Um, there's lots of elements actually. I I, I like the. Uh, pragmatism of it i like the fact that it, it's real and measurable uh, a lot of uh, i call it artificial success criteria so we get like uh, martial artists karateka are bad for this but there's lots of other martial arts that do too where they judge the progress karateka. by false criteria so it's how it looks you or how close it is to what a given master said you said karateka what's karateka Karateka is someone who practices karate. It's okay. just a Japanese term. Like a judoka would be someone who practiced judo. Okay. So, um, yeah, so what I like about the way I do things is it's, um, it's measurable. You know what I mean? I, and it's, it's honest. You can tell whether you're getting better or not because you'll either be fighting better or you won't. So that, that I like. I also, on a personal level, because I'm, there's lots of ways to be an effective martial artist. You know what I mean? People often ask that as well, you know, what's the most effective martial art? And I always say it's the one you enjoy the most because it'll be the one that you train hardest in is the only one you'll ever stand a chance of getting to work. Uh, and for me, one of the reasons I think I enjoy karate so much is there's a history to it, which I quite like. And I like feeling part of that tradition. I like feeling that I'm making a contribution to that tradition as well. So that kind of on a non-pragmatic level if you like that floats my boat that i um i like it it's a um it's intellectually stimulating for me are there things in the history 
of um, the, the karate um, that are as relevant today as they were then, or has it changed? No, so this is the thing. When I look back at the the, the history of it, so, see, I've also like a foot in two camps, really, because you know I train a lot, obviously, with with karate guys, and I also trained a lot with you know the reality based self defense guys for one. And that's a term that's kind of lost its way a little bit, but but I always had like a kind of foot in both camps, really, and I never saw a difference between the two. You know, you've got um, your Jeff Thompsons, your Peter Considines, your Motigs, and everybody recommending things like you know self protection, uh, um, a preemption for self protection. Well, so did the old masters, Funakoshi, Mabuni, Motobu. They they all did that. They talk at length about you know awareness, you know the need to escape. Then you know it, it's it's when I read the works of the old masters and I read the works of modern experts, I see no split between the two um it's 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 it's, which again it's it suits my needs and it suits what i wanted to um train for um so no i i don't see you know that side of things incentive central ethos is to be you know um i think it's as relevant as ever is it um isn't there a distinguishing isn't isn't there a a clear line of uh, of distinction between the two though where karate for example is said will not work as a self-defense mechanism it is no good for self-defense because it relies on consensual partners and and certain distances where self-defense uh where a situation arises you you don't have a consensual partner you don't get um particularly to choose where a, a, an incident may happen so surely then by that definition karate can't be relevant to to you know for for reality that, that's correct, but that's a way that it's um, it's a way that people practice karate. So what happens is, okay, around about like nineteen kind of forties, you know, onwards, really, for a brief period of time, karate loses its way that way. It's been practiced for other purposes, particularly, which is kind of my speciality, if you like. The forms, the classical forms, we've got got radically reinterpreted because they didn't really fully understand them. If you if you look back at what the old masters said about karate. Um, for example, nowadays, everyone would say, no, it's a kick-punch system, whereas Mabuni uh, said that, you know, we should never forget that, uh, sorry, Funakoshi said that we should never forget that karate included locking or throwing. In the 1930s, Mabuni expressed concern that karate was losing that element, and he said that the karate of Tokyo was incomplete, and people were starting to think that throwing and locking were only found in judo and jiu-jitsu. It really took its eye off the ball, and it gets reinterpreted as it was always intended to be, from as early as the, the 1908, you know, Itosu's letters, it's clear it was intended to be used. He said, he said, karate is not intended to be used against a single adversary. It is a method of avoiding injury by using the hands and feet should one by chance be confronted by a villain or ruffian. So that's over a hundred odd years ago. He's saying karate is not for a consensual square go. It's not for a, 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 a consensual fight. It's for keeping yourself safe from villains and ruffians. It was for self-defense, but it gets reinterpreted. So, um, and it doesn't work that way. So what happens is people, as you say, they have to get these forced distances and compliance in order to give something meaning. Whereas if you understand the character correctly, it doesn't need any of that. It doesn't need compliance. It it, it works well. It works really well in self-defense situations and the idea against, you know, that villains and ruffians in that environment. The, tech, the old style karate does not work well against other karateka. It was never designed for that, and that's why people have to kind of force it to fit. I love, I love these are the terms that we just don't have in, in common language anymore, and, and they're, they're, they are so missed. Villains and ruffians. I know it's great, that isn't it? Villains and ruffians. <laughs> I, I was downtown the other day in it, and I was approached by these villains and ruffians, and they they were they were wanting to have it large. I'm telling you, I was in their face, in their face, having it. <laughs> 
villains yeah. and ruffians. No, it, it does. I think it adds a little poetic uh, license to uh, street speak these days. That's how it gets. You know, that's how I got that translated myself. You say I paid a translator to do it, and that's the translations you came back with. So. I mean, obviously, you could use other words today, but everyone knows what he means, eh? So, um, <clears throat> okay, we, we, we've talked about application. What else? Well, one of the things that, um, that's come out of the conversation with you today is that, you know, at 12, you go out um, and start something new, and you said that it, you know, physically, um, stim- well, mentally stimulated, you know, st- mentally stimulated you and physically changed the way in which you are. So there, there aren't just the attributes that karate gave you for self-defense and confidence it also has a a physical benefit to it as well so would you say that's just something unique to karate was that something yeah. unique to something that you know they can be applied to other things as well as other, other activities absolutely everything you know what i mean i think can go through that that process sometimes as martial arts we have a bad habit of claiming we're unique in doing this and what people forget is the idea of using martial arts as a vehicle for self-development where that came from where they got the idea from was eaton school in england you know when they were using sport as a means just sport generally as a means for character development you know what i mean it was copied from the 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 school system, the English school system, you know, and then find its its way to Japan. So there's all kinds of things that this can be done with, you see. So I I always liked as well. So Kano, the founder of judo, he had this thing where he talked about the three levels of judo, but I think this could apply to anything. It, it doesn't really matter what it is, really. Any physical activity can apply to these. And to make it dead brief, he said the, the lower level of it is uh, judo is effective martial art. So that's, you know, learning to fight, learning to defend yourself. If it was playing football, it would be learning, you know, to score goals and win matches. That That's it, you know. So that's the lower level. The middle level is the physical and mental de- uh, developments that occur as a result of that primary training. So if you play in martial arts, you know, you get more resilient, you get mentally tougher, you get physically fitter, you get stronger. Same for more or less any physical activity you can think of. And having done that, the final level, which he called higher level judo, was to use those attributes you develop to help the community and those around you. And I think that's a really kind of nice model, you know, that I think that certainly applies to the martial arts or should apply to the martial arts um, and, and apply to more or less just any physical pursuit you want, to, you want to engage in. To me, you know, the highest level is when you've used it to develop yourself and you're using that in the service of others. It's an interesting model, actually, the way in which you described it, but it also seems to me as a model for developing a business. I'm sure that would be right. I hadn't thought of it that way, but as soon as you put that in, I'm sure you're right, yes. Because the, 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 the final piece, of the well, final thing, know, know your product, get it out there, and the way in which it's, it's going to be successful is to serve people. Yeah, absolutely. No, no, I hadn't thought of it that way, but you're right. You know, So primarily, you know, what are you trying to achieve? You make a product that achieves that goal. Second thing is you learn and develop, so you, you, know, you, you kind of improve it, and as it gets trialed, it gets better and better and better, you know? and, and then again, ultimately what you want it to be is of service to people, and when it is, of course, you know, you'll naturally reap the rewards for having done that. So yeah, I hadn't thought of it that way, but that's yeah, very true. So the the learning of karate actually from an early age and and from the attributes of it and the methodology is is what's kind of provided you with the the business plan for taking that leap of faith. Um, I'm sure, yeah. I mean, it's not just that. I've had other influences as well, but but um, that that it's certainly that's you get used to the process of putting yourself outside your comfort zone, growing and developing as a result, constantly refining what you're doing, and sticking with it when times get tough. I think that's one of the great things that martial arts give because anyone who's training them for long enough knows that they're horrible. You know, I mean, they can be really hard, 
work, stressful, the fear-inducing, nausea-inducing. But if we can develop that ability to stick with it, then we can also, that defiance, if you like, that defiance of failure, um, we find that we've got that. You know, and I've certainly in my personal life and stuff, I've done that as well. You know, when I've been at my lowest there, there's that bit of you that just says, I ain't quitting. I'm not giving up here. And 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 that it's that's you know the first time I can remember bumping into that was in the karate you know so okay. yeah I okay uh, I have that question and let let me you know be contentious um, sometimes there are, are good times to give up uh, and where being stubborn and continuing continuing to do something would just be foolhardy yeah uh, how do you know the difference yeah difficult isn't it you see and again I fell the wrong side of that line many times like. Um, I, I, I guess it's just experience. You see, the always one is, um, was it Nietzsche who said about the difference in difficulties where one was life and, um, enhancing and life kind of corroding and it's working out what it is. There's two kinds of difficulties. There's the difficulties that you want, uh, in your life where you grow from them and you're ultimately getting, uh, it will lead to something positive. And then there's the difficulties in your life which are corroding you and will ultimately lead to something negative. So, um, for example, if you're in a good relationship that had problems, then you stick with it. If you're in a corrosive relationship, you might want to get out of it. Mm. Um, if you've got um, uh, certain difficulties that are like self-induced, you know, if people have got like kind of behavioral patterns or drink or drug problems, or those kind of difficulties aren't good for you. You don't want to continue with those. You know, they would be life corroding ones. So I think, again, we've just all got to kind of step back every now and again and analyze it and think, am I growing from this or am I being corroded by this? So being honest. Yeah, just being, being honest with yourself. And often, you know, and it's it's hard to do that, you know, at times as well. But you know, I think that's what uh, um, we need to do. And you'll find out sooner or later because, you know what I mean, it, it's just inevitable. If you're making yourself, if, you, if it's, it's a kind of difficulties that will uh, grow you, you'll start to grow. If the start of difficulties that will corrode you, you'll start to corrode. You'll find out. You've just got to be observant of it and honest enough to go, no, that was a wrong turn. I need to kind of reset. Do you think um, your sector, your niche of the market, your particular um, thing that you are, you know, have your love affair with, is, is, is still generates as much interest as before? Is, is is you know, or has more interest, or is it diminishing? Um, Seems to be growing. I think um, because it's it's like anything else. It's um, uh, more and more people hear about what you do. You know, it's kind of the first stage, I guess, because, you know, in, even with this internet age, it's still word of mouth. You know, somebody somewhere has got to get you to visit your website and stuff. Um, and then, of course, people want to adapt uh, and adopt what you do. So at, at the moment, in terms of like, you know, seminar bookings and stuff like that, I've never been as busy. You know, I, it's, I, I um, think more, it's point I'm turning them down now. I can't fit them all in. I think more, more my question was to do with, you know, karate and its relevance today. Um you know, we talk about yeah. Bruce Lee um, and Enter the Dragon. That film, you know, exposed the world to something that was, you know, not seen before in the West, widely known uh, in, in the East, but not in the West. Um, we have the advent of these days of not KFC, as I often say, but <laughs> UFC. Um, although KFC, you know, it's... it's, it's has its merits, I must say, especially on a Saturday night when you know there's nothing else to do than watch the bloody X Factor, which is now finished. Um, but uh, US, UFC seems to be uh, on the rise. But do, you know, do you feel that traditional martial arts will suffer for its popularity, or do you think nah. the traditional martial arts still has its place, or is you know, as you say, it's still growing? It, it, it's well, I see it's it's still growing. It's what people want. You know, that, that's the thing. You see, is um, it, it, is you know, if people want to. Uh, 
train for like kind of combative sport or enjoyment or physical fitness or cultural interest or there's 101 things that the martial arts offer you know um, and it's it, for different things will appeal to different people. So I can understand, you know, why the kind of 25 year old guy wants to kind of, you know, get in the ring and test his metal. That makes perfect sense. You know, it might not be the right martial arts for the 65 year old grandmother who just wants a bit to de-stress a couple of times a week. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, so she'd be more interested, you know, Tai Chi or something would probably suit her more. You see, and it, it, there's, there's something for everybody. The danger is, I think, where what people have a bad habit of doing is trying to make one answer the solution to all questions. And that's not the way that it works there's there's room for all of it you just need to be honest about what you're doing if you're teaching a sport say you're teaching a sport if you're teaching it for cultural interest and recreation be honest about that if you teach it for self-defense be honest about it um it's when people try and teach one thing and pretend it's another i think that we tend to get problems uh, a little bit and i think there's there's loads of room for all those approaches because they've all got validity uh, when you've got people practicing them for the purpose of, for which they were intended you see so. how, do, how does somebody and you know distinguish between the wood and the trees then when they they go into um an art a martial art or a class of that 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 nature what's hard isn't it i mean in some cases people know exactly what they want you know so for them it's real easy you know so the person who's got a clear idea of um uh, you know i want to have some fun with friends a couple of times a week so that they might you know like almost like a boxer size class might be more suitable for them you know, so they know they don't want to spar and that kind of stuff. The problem is, is when, and you see this a lot actually, like where clubs and groups will advertise and the advertisers being all things to all men. So you see that they'll go, uh, come and learn fitness, fun, self-defense, art, sports, you know, all this kind of stuff. Well, you, you know, you can do more than one, but you, it's difficult to do, if you're chasing everything, it's difficult to do any of them to a, a high level. Um, and I guess it's just a matter of, you know, constantly trying to educate people as to um, to what's what. Because if you go to a club where they're practicing it as art, and which is nothing wrong with that, you know, I mean, but if, if that's what you're doing and they're marching up and down halls and doing motions just for the sake of getting the movements, movements right, they don't drill in a realistic way or um, they do sports-style sparring and then they're telling them it's self-defense with no mention of you know, escape skills, no mention of the law, no mention of awareness skills, de-escalation skills, uh, home security, mobile security, crime statistics. It's it's just wrong. They're, they're trying to sell one thing as something else, you know. And How? martial arts are bad for that. Martial arts are often some of the worst self-defense teachers because they don't teach self-defense. What they do is they teach fighting or they teach art and they call it self-defense. So, you know, it's misleading. And the poor guy walking through the door has no idea. He thinks a self-defense class probably should consist of a million and one ways to get out of a headlock, but it's far broader than that. And we just need to, you know, keep educating people to that's not what you need. You know, that's not what you need and try and get people to look for the right stuff, I guess. How do you get over the fact, you, know, you mentioned that, um, you know, that you can't be in all places at the same time now, um, and, you know, having to turn down seminars. How, how do you get, address the fact that, you know, there's only one of you? I mean, I'm, I'm talk, not particularly talking in terms of martial arts, but, you know, going back to your business model, um, you know, you're doing the job that you love. Uh, how, how you, you know, you, you're suggesting that you've reached a ceiling in terms of, only you can be in one place at one time, yet the demand yeah. for you is greater. How, how do you address that? Well, uh, certain things, okay. So one thing was, it depends on the purpose of your model. So if, if I was in this for a business, and that was my thing, at this point you'd go, right, uh, I can only physically be in one place at one time, so I need to start delegating, I need to start taking people out, I should maybe think of a franchise, and, but that's not me. I, I, I want to... 
uh, I need to earn money to in order to allow me to do what I want to do, but I don't do what I want to do to earn money, if you see what I mean. Yeah. So in terms of the traveling and going places, one of the great blessings of my job is I get to see great parts of the world. I always meet interesting people. On the day I drop dead, I can say, well, do you know what? That wasn't average. That was interesting. I've got already, I've got to surf in Australia. I've got to stand on top of snow-capped mountains in, in Canada. I've been in f- a few feet of bears in Canada. I've, I've met Norwegians, Danes, Belgians, you know, you, you know, and so all these different cultures. I, lo- I love all of that. On the other side of things, um, in terms of um, how I can reach more people, a lot of the stuff that I do for free, like the YouTube videos, my podcasts, uh, the website, these are all really kind of effective ways to make sure that even when I'm having my downtime, um, there's still... I've still got the books out there which people can read. I've got the DVDs which people can watch. I've got the online videos, the online articles, uh, the forum, the podcasts. All of that stuff's out there kind of, you know, working for me as as well, you see, Um, which does help, you know, helps helps a lot. But there is only physically one of me and I kind of quite like it. And some would say that, you know, one of me is quite enough. Hmm. (laughs) Okay, what's... um... What's kind of next? Where do you, where do you want to go? Have you you've, have you ticked everything off on your on your to do list? You've said you know if you get up to the pearly gates and you're talking to St Peter and you'll be saying to him, do you know what that wasn't average? I'm quite pleased with that. Are, are, are you there yet, or are there still objectives? You no, want there's to... still there's still plenty of things I wanted to do. I'm in a good position where I'm on the right path and I'm, I'm where I want to be in terms of what I'm doing. Um, but there's a few other things you know I want to do before I'm done. You know. Um, Martial arts-wise, I'm really happy that things are continuing to grow. You know, I'm getting more and more interested in what I do, you know, um, getting widely recognized for what I do as well. And people seem to like it and lots of people are adopting it. Well, that's that's great. So I want to kind of continue with that. And then personally and privately, you know, I've got like, you know, quite a few other little bits and pieces I'll do. Books, I want to get back to writing some more books again. And I've, you know, been toying with a few ideas for fiction books for a while as well. So that might be something I'll, I'll get around to before I'm uh, uh, before I'm done. But the key thing, I can't remember who said it, but I always remember that when he said, uh, the definition of success is to spend your life in the way of your own choosing. So by that definition, I'm very successful. Um, so in some ways, you know, if I was to drop dead tomorrow, I'd be happy with what I've done. Well, apparently, you know I mean? according to my daughters, um, it is the end of the world next week. Um, <laughs> that's right, 2012. That's yeah, right. it's, uh, I, I don't know, I, I keep pointing out, well, they keep telling me this is the talk of school. As adults, I don't have, seem to have these conversations with the people in KFC that I go and see regularly. <laughs> uh, sorry, um, uh, with the USC guys I train with. <clears throat> um, but uh, yeah, they, they seem to be convinced that um, sometime next week it is. So it may not be tomorrow, but it's probably the week after, if that's all right. Um, the other thing to do to note, if they are right, I'm going to put off all Christmas shopping until after the 20th um, because I'll, you know, I'll just save myself a huge pile of money and I won't have to give out the presents anyway. So I must keep them all to myself. Okay, I said at the beginning of this, um, the, the podcast that I've offered um, use of my time machine to each person that I've spoken to on previous episodes, and I'm going to offer you the same use of said time machine and um, going to give you the opportunity to create a time parallax. Um, thank you to Doctor Who for telling me how this one works and uh, <laughs> an episode I have recently saw on BBC Three. I'm going to give you the chance to hop in and go back and meet yourself, um, you know, at uh, while you're at school, if you like, um, and pass on a pearl of wisdom, a piece of advice, um, a, a guidance um, 
would you avail of the use of my time machine? And if you would, what would you say to younger Ian? Uh, from the experience and knowledge yeah. that you've brought to, you know, you've, you've accumulated to this point. Yeah. Well, one thing I would like to do, because we've talked about this in this one, my younger me, my 14, 15 year old me needed to chill out a bit. And I would have probably just gone back and look, you know what I mean? Just relax a little bit. Keep doing what you're doing. You know what I mean? Don't beat yourself up so much, you know, when things aren't quite going as you, you want them to do. You know, that'd be one thing that I'd, I'd, I'd want to do. Um, and personally there's one or two things in my life that i would like to go back and correct as well but maybe don't want to share them in that podcast but yeah. that'd be one thing i would definitely do is um get the younger me just to relax a bit and tell him you know you'll be doing what you want to do and the kind of being obsessive doesn't really help you you don't have to beat yourself up about it you don't have to beat yourself up about it you know what i mean you just have to because it's funny you see because i see that in some of my younger pupils as well you know I can see some of them are like just like what I was, you see. So my job now is to kind of make sure that they don't do what I did, you know. Yeah, enjoy training and, and, and love every second of it, you know what I mean? But don't kind of get obsessive with it. It's not mentally healthy. And and again, see, I still I still struggle with that now, though, you know. So if the younger me had got a handle on that, it would be a bit, it would be better for me now. I've said it takes more discipline for me not to train than it does for me to train. Um, and that, that's something, you know, that I would like to change, I think, you know, to try and get that bit more of a, a balance and to be a little bit kinder with myself and realise that I'm not invincible and I do need downtime and rest and recuperation every now and again, especially now I've crossed that barrier into my 40s. Cool, blimey, that's a ripe old age. Mm. Um, <clears throat> well, it, <laughs> well, it's different than it was in my 20s, yeah. you know what I mean? So I'm still going strong, you know, but I'm saying it's, it, the body doesn't quite snap back the way that it did, you know. Well, thank you for very much for, for warning me about that for when I get to that age. No, that's OK. You, you've learned from my example. Thank you very much. <laughs> Mr Ian Abernethy, it's been a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you for being candid and open and talking about um, the love of your life and how it continues to be the love of your life and how you um, actually put uh, aside the norm and um, and took the leap of faith to make it you know part of your daily existence to, to you know and earn yourself a few quid as well yeah you're very welcome a pleasure to do it <laughs>